0: Hi, this is Dan Kilbride. I am the chair of the history department at John Carroll University outside of Cleveland, Ohio, and also the host of New Books in American Studies. Once a week or so, we find a book, or sometimes a book finds us, and we sit down with the author for an hour or so. Today, we are joined by Sharon Ann Murphy. We're going to discuss her book, Investing in Life, Insurance in Antebellum America. This book was published in 2010 by the Johns Hopkins University Press, but it just came out in paperback. So it's not a new book, but it's newish. The Antebellum Period is actually a very fertile one for uh, business and economic history. Uh, We have stopped using the term, uh, at least I think we have, market revolution, and thank God for that. Uh, But there's really a lot going on in terms of the history of early corporations, the history of internal improvements, and government intervention in the economy. So this book comes at a pretty exciting time in American economic history. So Sharon Murphy, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you for
0: having me. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Uh, So I'm an associate professor of history at Providence College. Um, I received my degree from the University of Virginia in uh, 2005, and I've been at Providence ever since. And uh, I'm a business historian, but uh, I like to say I'm social and business historian. I'm trying to. more look at the interactions between financial institutions and uh, their customers and the general public. So, trying to uh, bring together a couple different uh, uh, streams of of history in my work.
0: Well, I have to ask this question. Uh, try not to be insulted. I mean, in the best possible <laughs> way, but. Uh, were you torn in college beco- between becoming like an historian and an actuary? <laughs> Why life insurance? The history of life insurance. Please explain.
1: Uh, so, I, actually, I, I no, I never wanted to be an actuary. Um, I went into uh, grad school. I knew I wanted to be a historian. Uh, initially, I wanted uh, I was going to study economic history, um, and uh, but in a history department. Uh, Because I I really wanted that strong historical basis. And I actually was interested in banking. Uh, So my first project was, I intended to be on late 19th, early 20th century banking. And so that's what I was exploring early in my graduate career. And uh, my advisor actually uh, was talking to a pretty important um, historian, economic historian of banking and mentioned, Uh, me, his grad student to this, to this person. And uh, he said, he kind of rolled his eyes and said, oh, everybody does (laughs) banking. Um, But you know, no one does life insurance. And it's in a really important financial intermediary. And we really don't know much about it. And so my advisor came back to me with that. And I thought, well, let me at least look into the possibility. What is this life insurance field? And as I started looking, I realized there was really only Two scholarly works on life insurance. One had been written in the sixties. One in the seventies. Um, other than that, there was a bunch of uh, corporate uh, company histories, and uh, there was uh, uh, some articles. There were some uh, people who had done some work around the edges of life insurance, or had looked at, uh, stumbled on life insurance, and doing other work, but really hadn't focused on life insurance itself. So, um, I thought, well, Hey, you know, it's an open field. I can do a lot with it. Let me start doing it. And, uh, I was still going to do late 19, um, 1870s to 1920s was kind of my period I was looking at. And as I got into the research, uh, my antebellum chapter uh, morphed into the entire book, um, and, and and kind of late in the process too. All of a sudden, uh, I, w- I was getting pretty far into everything, and went, "Oh, oh my God, I'm actually a, a you know a historian of the early republic." When did that happen? <laughs> and so yeah. kind of snuck up on me, but uh, it was a nice surprise. I've 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 kind of embraced the period now. But
0: <laughs> well, I mean, when you actually find in American history a field that is unplowed, yeah. You've got to go for it because there, there really aren't any anymore. I mean, it's, it's, right, it's to right. find that something would, that, new.
1: Yeah. And it actually makes it hard to find a second project. Uh, Cause you can't do it again. You can't, you can't hit, hit gold twice like that.
0: <laughs> no way. It's just impossible. <laughs> uh, well, let's get into the book. Um, you know, so it, it is interesting. I think that life insurance does have a history that it didn't just, you know, it hasn't always been with us. Um, and one of the, dilemmas you discussed regarding life insurance is that it, it, it had a problem just, uh, the, the early advocates of life insurance had a problem of legitimacy. Right. They had a problem just you know making themselves seem moral and, and necessary and legitimate. What was that problem of legitimacy and how did they overcome it?
1: Well, the, the main problem they had um, was the history coming out of Europe. So um, life insurance did have a longer history in Europe. It, it actually, people say it goes back to uh, Babylonian times and uh, there's overlap with marine insurance, but the more recent history in Europe um, was kind of colorful. Uh, there was a lot of gambling policies, people taking out policies on the lives of other people that they really had no interest in whether or not they lived or died. <laughs> and then perhaps helping them along to their death. And uh, so there were, there was a lot of shenanigans going on and how much this happened is up for debate, but the, certainly the impression was there that this was um, more about gambling and more about, uh, uh, you know, it was a, a, Encourage crime and criminal behavior. Um, So a lot of European countries actually had banned it in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, banned it outright, and you weren't allowed to engage in life insurance. And England had tried to reform it. Um, They put in place this law in the 1770s to to try to um, this insurable interest. Law to make sure that um, in order to have a policy on someone you had to have in an, an interest in their ongoing life that you weren't you weren't going to benefit <laughs> from their death um, and uh, but it's still you, even the, the, even in England uh, it still had um, some negative connotation, so obviously america's constantly you know borrowing from England and copying things from England and so uh, people were very concerned here that the reputation Coming from Europe was going to um, prevent the industry from getting established here and so the the early promoters of the industry worked very hard both to distance themselves from their uh, from any um, relationship with the with the European with the British companies um, which Privately, they were copying everything they could from them because they're trying to create an industry from scratch. So they're trying to mm-hmm. um, get all the everything they can from these British companies. Uh, but publicly, they're trying to distance themselves. They're trying to show how they're different. They we are um, uh, not too shock- shocking, uh, more Puritan about this than the than the <laughs> British are. And so we kind of assert ourselves as uh, being um, adamant that you have to keep your insurable interest. Uh, for the entire life of the policy, and it, and it does make for a more secure industry. So that's that's the, the one problem they had with the really public. And the other thing was, of course, um, how do you value them? How do you price these uh, these policies? Um, and we didn't have uh, one of the huge problems they face, actually throughout the 19th century, is not having good mortality tables, not being able to predict. Um, and they're trying to convince the publicly, they're telling the public, uh, we have a scientific basis, we know exactly on average um, how many people are going to die of a different, given age in a given year. We don't know the individuals, but we know on average. Privately, they're saying, we have no clue what we're doing. <laughs> uh, so they're, they have these two different faces they're trying to to put forth, and so it's, uh, it's a really interesting con- conundrum that they have.
0: So basically the movie double indemnity yeah. has very, very deep historical roots. Oh, I love that
1: movie. And it, and it actually, it kills, you do. it kills me that I couldn't work it into uh, the book, but it's just so far, far from uh, the time period. But yeah, I love that movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, that would, that would have been a stretch, yeah, I, yeah, think. I think. So, so. we're going to give you a pass on that one. Yeah. Um, but, you know, eventually, despite the, these uh, issues, you, know, you you really trace the early history of American life insurance to Philadelphia. Right and a number of Philadelphia businessmen who really saw uh, some potential, some profitable potential in life insurance. Uh, why did they you know, think that they could actually make this work? What what led them to think that we can do this?
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, uh, marine insurance was already successful. Um, fire insurance um, had uh, been working pretty well at this point, even though fire insurance is going to be much smaller. You know, ph- Philly is our financial capital still um, in this early, period and they're they're seeing um, the impact of urbanization uh, that you know it's it's somewhat mythical that the rural lifestyle took care of everyone but there is some truth to that as well that uh you know you have a household economy and on a farm and uh the women and the children can contribute to the farm and the father dies that farm can continue they can hire workers they can work it themselves so there is a mm-hmm. little more security in a rural lifestyle or you can be people can take you into their families and you can contribute to the household even if they're taking you in as a widow or an orphan. And you get to the uh, urban environment and uh, you now have this idea of a male breadwinner who's leaving the house. And uh, there's a lot of insecurity with someone that that male breadwinner dies and the the wife and children can't just take up his uh, his career, his uh, his work for for themselves It's there's not as much um, things for women and children to do in an urban society to contribute to a household. So they're more of a burden uh, financially. And so this is a way um, and people saw this people. And ironically, the the first people who saw this are actually ministers. um, because uh, They're the ones who are kind of living this lifestyle already. They're not attached to. So even in the rural communities, they're not attached to a farm. They don't make a huge income, and so there's a lot of insecurity for their families if if they die. And so they're they're very early on ministers actually, uh, and this goes against what other people have said. um, Ministers very early on are are supportive of this, and people are are trying to help ministers. Some of the earliest American companies um, are not-for-profit companies organized by uh, the Presbyterian ministers and the Episcopal or Anglican church uh before the revolution Anglican church and the presbyterian church to um, provide for their ministers so but there's this this sense of we have this problem now that we can't ensure our families uh their their economic security over the long term uh there there's much more insecurity you're breaking ties you no longer have strong family connections in urban environment and, and so they're looking for a solution. And so the, these, um, early entrepreneurs are kind of seeing a market potential. You still have to kind of create that market, uh, convince people that this is the solution that they should be exploring, but they see this as a potential solution to this, this market problem.
0: Mm-hmm. They did have trouble though, developing a you know workable business model, yeah. right? I mean, just figuring out, you know, how do we make this profitable? Um, what were the big obstacles uh, they had to overcome to actually make this work? And how did they do it?
1: Yeah. So I think, um, you know, they, uh, the biggest obstacles, you're, you're starting from scratch. You're starting an industry um, that you're, people aren't demanding this. This is, uh, you know, I was talking about branding in my uh, class today, my business history class. <laughs> and um, sometimes people, uh, sometimes you're filling a market need and sometimes you're telling people they need something so in some ways this was the they were trying to be the steve jobs telling you what you don't (laughs) realize that you absolutely need um so they're they're trying to create this uh this product and convince people that they need this that this is the solution to to the problem no one wants to talk about death um no one wants (laughs) to admit that they possibly might be the one To die early, so this is another problem that they have. No one wants to have this discussion. The the thirty year olds are going to say, "Well, it's not going to be me." Um, So one of the problems, uh, or one of the solutions they have, is to to reframe the conversation to kind of make it more well. It's not just you're protecting your families, but this is also a long term investment. And let's let's frame it so very early on. They frame it as an investment opportunity for (laughs) uh, for people, so that. That's uh, another uh, thing they have to address. They're obviously adopting the business model of Britain. They're, they're very close ties um, privately with, um, with British uh, insurers to adopt their model. But like I said, the absolute biggest problem for them was not knowing how to value these policies. And um, the, there's a couple of mortality tables that British insurers use. We the the American insurers have no idea whether they're applicable in the United States. Um, they they could be too high, they could be too low. They they have no idea the predictive power of these, um, especially because the United States is so different geographically. Um, people wonder uh, are cities healthier or less healthy, um, the north versus the south, rural areas versus or urban areas. There's all sorts of. Um, different problems and to develop a mortality table, it takes time. Um, It's also really hard to do. If you have a, a moving population, it's hard to Mm -hmm. track people Mm -hmm. living in, uh, you know, who's being born, who's dying and who's just moving in and out of a community. So we have such a mobile population and you don't have a central government saying everybody has to register their births. Everybody has to register their deaths or even a um, establishment church to do that for you. So, uh, most people, uh, you know, are just moving in and out of communities or being born and dying without um, any oversight from a government agency or anyone able to track them. So uh, it's a it's a guessing game early on. They adopt the British tables. Um, they add a very hefty charge on top of it just in case. Um, they're lucky in the sense that uh, they overcharge they vastly overcharge um, so the the industry doesn't go bankrupt initially which is a good thing uh, <laughs> but that by vastly overcharging then they're limiting how many people want to buy insurance because sure. it's expensive at first they also don't know it's, it's hard to tell well we're overcharging today 10 years from now are, are we still overcharging because you know as the as your population who are insured ages so there, there was long-term angst in the industry as they're trying to do this, and they're constantly revising these tables. Um, they do it, early on, they do it more or less in lockstep, the the companies with each other. No one wants to break out too far. Um, they recognize right. that uh, that this is uh, um, something that they have to do together. Um, after the Civil War, there's a great growth in the industry, and then that's where you start having some companies uh, kind of uh, trying to break out and do something radically different, cut rates, um, ex, you mm. know, a lot. Um, but, but that tends to create some instability in the industry. But early on there, that's probably the biggest issue is um, just how do we value these policies correctly so that we... Because you're, you're talking about selling someone a policy and, and promising them. You're not selling them, a, um, you know, a train ticket or, a, mm-hmm. you know, a mm-hmm. can of soup you're selling them something that you're promising to pay them in 50 years. So is your company still going to be in business yeah. in 50 <laughs> years? It's, it's a much different mindset than a manufacturing company or, uh, you know, or even a, even a bank where you're, you know, you're talking about savings, but you're not talking about necessarily a, a 30, 40, 50 year timeframe.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the interesting things about this book is, uh, you see some of the developments of of, of some things we just consider quintessential elements of American culture. And one of those elements is the, the insurance agent. Yes. Uh, you know, the guy who comes to your door and uh, wants to sell you a policy because one of the dilemmas was, you know, how do we sell policies? How do we reach out uh, to a public? As you said earlier, to sell them a product that they don't know they need. Right. Uh, so uh, who were the early insurance agents and what qualities did companies like, you know, the New York Life Insurance and Trust Company look for in an agent?
1: Yeah. So the, the, our stereotype of the life insurance agent is more of a late 19th century development. Um, the early life insurance, well, initially there were no agents. Um, initially you had to go to the head office, so either in the, the first companies were either in Philly, Boston, or New York, you had to mm-hmm. l- go to the head office um, and appear before the the board of directors there, and they would um, and you, you uh, there was a, an application form, but they would visually size you up and decide <laughs> whether they're, and, and they're not, they don't necessarily have any medical training in doing this, um, you needed to provide a letter from a personal doctor and it had to be someone that they knew who it was. You had to provide a letter from a friend uh, that was well-known in the community. So personal connections were extremely important. Um, And they had a vouch that, yes, this person um, uh, leads a healthy life. They haven't lied on their application form. Um, So early on, it was very unscientific. Uh, The the New York Life and Trust, um, and they're a really interesting company because they recognize Very early on, the potential to sell policy. Well, William Bard, the president of the company, he's the president and the actuary, first actuary. He um, recognizes that the safety of the industry depends on selling more policies. That if you only sell a handful of policies, any one death could be catastrophic. But if you if you have this spread out, and that that the insurance tables, the mortality tables, that they don't know whether they're going to work, but they can't work over a small group of people, that even if they're correct, they have to be spread over a large group of people for it to be true. So he recognizes this essential problem that you you have to sell more policies. And you do that by lowering the price. So he's constantly trying to reevaluate the tables to see, can we lower the price, but also by spreading your market, opening up a wider market. And he realizes that well, we can't just limit ourselves to New York City. We can't limit ourselves just to the people who can get to our home office. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he starts targeting um, the cities. Initially, it's the cities along the Erie Canal um, through New York, particularly Rochester becomes very important in all of this. Um, and uh, he wants to start expanding sales out to these uh, different areas. But who do you have as your agent? Who do you trust? Who can the company Trust. And so initially, they are looking for people who have connections in the community, who know a lot of people, who are going to know who the doctors are, who are going to know who a lot of the people applying are, who are going to know the people in the reference letters. So it has to be someone with a lot of connections. They're also worried they don't want someone who is uh, so dependent on the commission that they're going to be. Lacks about who they let through. They don't want to be writing policies on poor lives, so they want someone that they can they can trust in that respect. They don't want someone who's looking out for a short term buck. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and so this is actually very similar to um, Ruina Allegaria um, has a great book on the, called The Culture of Trust um, on credit rating agencies, and very similar to the credit rating agencies, the the um, life insurers hone in on. Up and coming lawyers as being their (laughs) ideal group. And for a number of reasons. One, they do have all these connections in the community. Two, they have higher aspirations. They are not just looking out for their immediate profit, they're looking for status in the community. They're looking for connections. They're often looking for um, political aspirations. So it's someone who they think they can trust is not going to uh, try to defraud them or, or sell, the, sell bad policies in the short term because they're looking for that long-term relationship. They're looking to create a long-term reputation. Their reputation matters, both mm-hmm. um, their reputation in the community, but also there's a reputation with a large company that could prove helpful for them. Uh, the companies also see these lawyers a- as having potential once they do um, get into politics. Well, that could help with... Um, uh, le- regulation within the state legislature that they can have mm. some influence. If it's uh, a former, uh, former life insurance or current life insurance agent, um, could have some potential influence that could be helpful to them. So they see this as a, a win-win. So these are not your your seedy elements initially. These are kind <laughs> of your your a thirty-year-old lawyer trying to establish his name in the community. That's their ideal person. Um, and someone there, they're not going to be dedicated to life insurance. So these are not dedicated agents. Uh, you do eventually get uh, dedicated agents, but these um, th- they're going to have their lawyer shingle out. And below it um, would be, you know, oh, you can also apply to me for life insurance with the New York Life and Trust. And um, they're not actively going out to solicit, even though the company expects them to talk it up among their friends to talk to people that are coming into their office, but they're not knocking on doors. Um, So the company is still relying on word of mouth, but now they're putting their people into the community now. um, Out there to serve as their eyes and ears um, until they have a more scientific way. And and they expect these agents to actually size up just like the board of directors were doing size up the applicants, you know, don't know it uh, do you know do they engage in dangerous habits that we're not aware <laughs> of um, are they uh, what did their parents die of? They, they said their parents, uh, you know, died in a train crash. Well, did their parents actually die of consumption at, at 30? You know, so they want that kind of information from these agents. So, so a lot of it, it it's, uh, you know, car, car, trying to recreate that rural fishbowl where you can't get, a, you can't get away with anything. They're trying to mm-hmm. recreate that with these agencies, local agents. And, you know, what do you know to ask around? You don't know about this person. Well ask around. Maybe your friends know something about the person. And, uh, yeah. Really trying to um, find out in now and also visually look at them because, uh, you know, before they had medical exams, they, they needed to visually, you know, does this person look healthy? Not just do they have a healthy family <laughs> history, do they look like they're someone who's going to live to be a strong life? And so you see these letters going back and forth between the agents and the companies. And they're fascinating because they are they really are Um, having these conversations about individual policyholders and putting in their personal um, observations and, um, you know, and and writing to them, hey, you know, I know, um, you know, that this person looks good on paper, but I'm not feeling good about uh, giving him this policy or or the opposite. This person looks bad on paper. But you know what? I think, (laughs) um, you know, his his. Brother and sister died young, but he has a strong constitution. He, the way he's built, it, I don't think he's consumptive. Um, and so they have these <laughs> these conversations uh, back and forth in the in the letters, and they're really they're really great to read.
0: So it's very much like what Dun and Bradstreet yes. would do, which is getting you know just feet on the ground yep. and the man on the street, and actually saying you know we can trust this guy. He's got a reputation. He's got a you know I, I interviewed his neighbors and stuff right. like that. So yeah, yeah, no, exactly.
1: Great. It's very much like that. This, same The same exact type of mentality um, same exact pro- approach and uh, you know really trying to you know you're you're living in this this anonymous world, this urban environment, and it's trying to break down that anonymity again that, that's the the biggest fear is people either they know they're sick they um, fear that they have a, a weak family history there, there's something uh, that the person applying knows. Uh, that is making them come in to get insurance and you don't want the person who's going to die tomorrow you don't want the person who thinks they're you know (laughs) going to be short-lived and so you want to uh, have a way of weeding those people out your biggest fear is the is the person who comes in and you know looks good but (laughs) <laughs> secretly knows that they're not healthy, that they've been spitting up blood for the last uh, two weeks and they're concerned nice. about their health.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the next topic we'll file under the more things change the where they stay the same. And that is fraud. Yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, of course this was just like looking at somebody and figuring out if they're really healthy or if they are, as you charmingly said, spitting up blood <laughs> in secret. Um, you know, what kinds of, uh, Fraud dilemmas did early companies face? And you know, how did they try to anticipate or deal with fraud? And the next question is related to this, and that is the question of reputation. Right. Because you know, then and now life insurance companies did not have a great reputation, and you deny somebody a claim and you look like a heartless bastard. Right, right. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, the, these companies are, are faced with saying, you know, did this guy, you know, did he commit suicide because he's trying to get the claim for his family. You know, is this on the level? Or are we looking at double indemnity, you know? So how did they, what kinds of frauds did they deal with and how did they try to anticipate and and deal with these frauds and how did they deal with the questions of reputation? Right,
1: right. And the question of reputation is going to be a problem throughout. Um, So the earliest frauds are going to be more lying on the policy application. Um, You know, you're saying your parents uh, died of uh, some of an accident and not natural causes and uh, that they died older than they did and um, or um, lying about your own. Uh, history your own health history um and uh spinning of blood was a sign of consumption which was their biggest fear that's why i use yep. that example but a <laughs> uh, li- lying about uh your own health history so those kinds of frauds would be the uh the most common that you would see um and they had a, a variety of ways that they tried to um that, that they asked detailed uh, and in- increasingly detailed questions on the policy applications first policies only had about five questions um, and by the uh, Civil War, there could be a hundred health questions on your uh, wow. application yeah and and, and it, the British industry actually mocks the American industry for going <laughs> overboard and there 's a, a number of commentaries in Uh, newspapers and stuff where where uh, this comes up for quite a bit of mockery uh, in the public you know these these detailed applications but um, so one way is to just ask more detailed questions and maybe catch someone off guard that they don't realize what information they're giving you another is to you know require the um, a a medical exam Um, either initially it's by your personal physician eventually all the companies develop um uh, medical examiner staffs that who, who will examine them um, and again this is you know there, there's uh, this is still early in the science so it's hard to for these uh, doctors to be predicting but it's it's another way <laughs> sure. to try to uh, combat these kinds of fraud and um, having people vouch for you uh, for the truthfulness of your statements and also the, the the constant threat that if you did lie on your application then and we find out then that application is is null and void and we're not going to pay off your beneficiaries mm-hmm. um other types of fraud uh, suicide was a huge issue uh well i don't want to say it's a huge a huge concern uh, i don't want to make it sound like everybody's committing suicide but uh <laughs> but it was a huge concern one having to prove suicide but two um suicide was always uh, banned in a policy it was always uh, one of the things that you, the company would not pay out in the case of suicide, but very quickly it comes down to, well, are you going to challenge uh, a family, say, well, we think it's suicide and they don't, and so there's reputational issues there.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: then you also have um, the question of, well, is this, the commission of suicide, should that really be classified um, as uh, a, a voluntary act? And very early on, hmm. people start arguing. And this this coincides that uh, there's a uh, Rick Bell just did a great book on suicide, the history of suicide in this very same period. And uh, we were uh, postdocs together uh, or I was a postdoc and he was a predoc. And um, and so we had a lot of overlap with our with our uh, <laughs> our stuff here. But um, they um, so there was a there's a changing attitude towards suicide. So it used to be that suicide was automatically you're going to hell this is the worst thing you could do, self-murder. Um, there's a changing attitude in this period that people start saying, well, is is suicide a sign of insanity? Is it really, um, can you really hold that person culpable? Is, is um, you know, are you more likely, are most suicides committed by people who are insane or are all suicides? Is, is suicide evidence in and of itself of insanity? Mm. And if that's the case, can you, can you uh, hold the beneficiaries at fault, the family at fault? It's like uh, punishing them twice. First, your loved one committed suicide, and now we're not going to pay out on your policy. Is it punishing them twice to do that? Um, so it, it becomes very contentious, and the companies—they're—they're they're constantly trying to deal with this. Well, you know, they change the wording of the policy. Um, now it's not only um, suicide. Uh, now they say suicide sane or insane and they they try to actually like (laughs) like put that in there as part of it but but this is a problem that um continues to haunt them the whole time even though it's not huge numbers of people Um, and if it's someone who takes out a policy and immediately commits suicide it's a little easier for them to fight because then they could say it was premeditated if it's someone though that has an ongoing policy for five six years and suddenly commits suicide well then it wasn't necessarily fraudulent. So one of the ways they deal with a lot of these frauds, these these um, issues on the uh, of lying on the application of suicides, they eventually realize the actuaries realize that the risk from these uh, these types of fraud reduce over time, and hmm. so once a policy that has been in place for say five years. The um, and some people argued it was as short as three years. The it's no longer messing up the mortality tables. So if you have all these people taking out fraudulent policies and then dying immediately, that's going to really mess up your mortality tables, your predictors Mm -hmm. of who's going to die. But the the actuaries say, you know, after five years or so, it's it's no longer a concern. So they actually started writing into the policies um, that they would be in they would be uncontestable or incontestable after. A certain number of years. And usually it was it was five years. And that, that after that point, unless it was a, a more egregious type of fraud, uh, they would they would not contest a policy. And so that mm. was one way they tried to balance this li- you know, this litigation issue with trying to keep uh, keep the frauds out. Right. Now, certainly the most the most heinous types of fraud would be murder. Um, and uh, that happened extremely rarely uh, but they always it <laughs> always so. made the news um, and, and and it Whether it happened in Britain or the United States, it made the news. And, uh, you know, so a a British case would be just as detrimental to the industry's reputation as an American case. And it was great for fiction. So there was a lot of fictional literature (laughs) talking about, you know, uh, murdering for life insurance policy. So that um, also worked negatively for the industry, uh, there there were quite a few, especially, and this seems to have blossomed um, into the 1860s as life insurance really um, really is expanding rapidly. You see more faked deaths, so um, not outright murders, um, but people faking their death to to get the claim on a life insurance policy, and certainly when you you don't track social security numbers. You don't have fingerprints. Yeah. Um, it's easy for so, And you have a very mobile society. It's easy enough for someone to uh, fake their own death and then move somewhere else and create a new identity. And no one's the wiser. Um, and so you would have uh, people, um, the, the most common ways to fake a death. Um, one was drowning because uh, it was relatively easy. Um, to either um, dig up a recently dead body to use um, (laughs) to throw in the water. And and, and once a waterlogged body is found, you can't recognize it Um, or the body's never found. So you you always need some witnesses and sometimes the witnesses are willing and sometimes they're they have no idea they're participating. You, you know, go off for a swim and never come back and they never find your body. (laughs) So either. So that, that was a very common thing. Drowning was a very common way to fake fake death. Um, you, um, also, uh, you know, the funeral was a huge deal cause you need to, um, if you fake a death, uh, in another way, you need a body. Um, yes, and do. so funerals, <laughs> again, you would either, um, put in a, um, a recently dead body into the coffin so dig up a body and put it into the coffin in in your place um and uh, or you would fill it with some kind of debris so you would have rocks and sticks and twigs to weigh the approximate weight of a man and then you just seal it and oh you do not and and oftentimes you need a doctor who was present at the death and they would say oh you don't want to open that coffin that was you know there's some really bad miasma coming out of that so you know leave that closed and and um in all these cases you you often had the the person faking their death would would show up at the funeral in disguise to witness <laughs> their, um their own funeral um and like in a general hospital yeah yeah exactly and um and, and then they would go off and so these cases seem to become more common in the 1860s um even though they could have been happening earlier but we 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 aren't we just aren't catching them as much um outright murder was very rare um, but again, it would show up in the literature. And that was what people really feared was that people are being murdered. And so all these cases would show up in um, in newspaper articles and magazine articles. And the industry was always so quick to, to reply. They, they knew that there would be nothing worse yeah, to their I reputation know. than getting uh, being associated with crime. And so whenever you had Henry Mayhew, the the very famous uh, British
0: uh,
1: uh, journalist and, uh, you know, he was kind of the British muckraker, um, you know, talking about the poor in London, he did this expose on British life insurance. And he and, and it was published in uh, both in Britain and America. And he ends this expose where it's going through office by office and how he's interviewed people. And they're telling them all telling him all these stories about people poisoning people and people. You know, the worst thing to, <laughs> is to be married to a doctor because he knows how to poison you and, uh, and all these kinds of things. And, he's, and it's just really sensational. And he ends the whole thing with. What would happen if we asked the American offices, you know, and it was kind of like this challenge and the American the British industry ignores them. The American industry goes berserk and they have, you know, they respond. And, and you know, this is ridiculous. We have no evidence of any of this happening. This is stuff that happens overseas. It's because the uh, the British are, you know, just don't um, they're they don't keep control of their industry. And, they, you know, but this doesn't happen here. And And they were very concerned about that, so both the being associated with crime, and on the flip side, the the you know being overly litigious, and uh, they never wanted to be found challenging claims right. unfairly. They often would settle a questionable claim rather than take it to court. and um, you know, anytime they challenged a claim that seemed like it was unfair. Everybody always came down on in the industry. The jury came down the industry. The mm. public came down. So they had to be really careful uh, because if they didn't challenge claims, then the fraud would be rampant. But if they did challenge claims, right. they get this bad reputation. So it was this constant, just like with the mortality tables, they, they struggled with this all, all year, all um, century. With the, the issues of litigation, they struggled all century.
0: Right one of the things that you describe in this book is the, uh, you know, the rise of the middle class, which is sort of a commonplace of the historical literature in this period. And the ways in which the insurance uh, business saw the rise of the middle class as a huge opportunity. Mm -hmm. And they, they appealed to both the middle class's fears and their aspirations in order to get them to sign up for life insurance. How did they, you know, in what ways did they do both of those things?
1: Yeah. So this is what I was saying at the beginning that, um, you know, on the one hand, it's really your middle class who's your target market. They're the ones who, um, you know, they're establishing this comfortable lifestyle for their family. They have these aspirations that they're, they're going to be able to get their kids educated. They're going to be able to set their sons up in business. They're going to find a good husband for their, their daughters. And that their families are going to be able to live comfortably on their um, salaries. But they realize that unlike the rich who, you know, have a, you know, investment income and, uh, you know, a fallback, that if they were to die tomorrow, their families will be just thrown into turmoil. Um, Their Mm -hmm. wife may have to start working, taking in sewing, taking in, uh, you know, laundry. Uh, they're, They're... Children may have to drop out of school, you know, their sons may have to now, you know, claw their way up rather than being um, set in business. So they're very concerned about these kinds of issues. So they're an easy target market for life insurers to say you're the ones who would benefit most from this. Um, Yes, you can use a savings bank. Yes, you can, you know, put away your um, your pennies every every week and uh, try to save up over time. But um, what if you die tomorrow? um you die tomorrow and you've paid one premium we'll pay you out the entire amount of your policy and your mm-hmm. and your family will be set and um it it was almost that they they really played into um the mindset of the middle class you know you're you're, you're meant to be a provider for your family I um, mean, you're not doing your duty if you die you may not have control of that, but you're no longer doing your duty, but your wife may have to remarry. Um, and then, you know, that may be her only way out of this. And so this was a, a really an appeal to their, their greatest fear, um, which was falling out of the middle class, that their, their families wouldn't Hmm. stay middle class, that they, um, their, their sons and daughters would have to start from a lower level. They wouldn't be better off. But as I said, no one actually wants to talk about death. No one really is excited <laughs> to you know, consider the possibility that they're going to die young. So they did also want to tap into the aspirations of the middle class. And just as they fear falling out of the middle class, they aspire to climb higher within it or even mm-hmm. um, into a higher class. So um, they tried to really tap into that as well and to, to make it more of an investment and this is where the um particularly the mutual life companies um when they develop uh in the in the 1840s um even though the first mutuals in the 1830s they they really take off in the 1840s they really try to tap into this idea that by buying a policy you are making an investment and there's not many investment opportunities for the middle class at this time you um to buy stocks and bonds requires uh, in a, a considerable initial investment that most people don't have. It's not mm-hmm. available yeah. and you don't have um uh, savings. Banks are really meant for the poor Um they're, They actually block out middle-class depositors because they're trying to be more philanthropic uh, and, and you don't, and, and regular banks are not um, really designed for a savings function. So, they they don't really have it many places to put their excess income and to try to increase on that. So the life insurers actually step in and they're, they're almost like the uh, mutual funds of the 19th century, mm. kind of your middle-class investment, low-risk, high-return investment opportunity. And so they, um, they, they kind of tap into this idea that of, uh, well, we're overcharging you because <laughs> we don't know what the actual mortality is. Um, but rather than... The profits going to dividends to shareholders, we're going to make the company mutual. And now any profits um, are going to be distributed among the policyholders. And so they they make this and they, they talk about it in terms of, now it's really, uh, in reality, they're paying back your overpayments, um, but they call <laughs> it dividends and they use investment mm-hmm. language to really make you feel like, well, you're you're you know playing in high finance here, but it's low risk. Yeah. There's you're not going to lose anything because if if you die, your your family gets the death benefit, and if the company does poorly, they do not come after you um, and try to make you pay more. So there's a yeah. there's a floor. You 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 have this potential to get this dividend, um, and and they do actually pay. Dividends over time, uh, but but there's no downside for you, so it's a, a low risk uh, investment for them, and so that really appeals more to people because they're they're getting the death side of it, but they they can focus more on the um, this is an investment opportunity, this is something that will benefit me in the in the long term mm-hmm. by the by the 1850s 1860s the, the the industry actually takes that to an extreme and um, actually designs. Specifically investment policies, um, these, uh, deferred dividend policies, which are, um, kind of gambling, uh, you're, you're put into a, you're put into a pool of people, say, um, a hundred people and you, you have a, you know, your fixed life insurance policy, your normal life insurance policy, um, But they say, we're not going to give you any dividends for, and it's a set amount of years for, say, 15, 20 years, no dividends. We're going to take those dividends and reinvest them ourselves. And at the end of the 20 years, um, if you die in the meantime, your your family gets the death benefit. No problem. Um, If at the end of the 20 years, anyone who's still left, who hasn't died or who hasn't lapsed on their policy payments, whoever's left gets to divide up all of that investment um, and so they, they promised these huge returns for people who participated in this. And um, especially because, well, you knew you weren't going to be the person who died and you weren't going to be the stupid one who lapsed on your policy. So you were going to be in the small group that really benefited mm. in the end. And, and this actually became um, sort of a, 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 the, the companies um, by the late 19th by, by uh, the turn of the century. Um, and this is a little outside of my period, but by the turn of the century, this is um, something like, a, I want to say like a third of all policies, if not more, were in this form. Um, but the companies wow. were actually abusing it, and they were uh, <laughs> abusing, by not paying these dividends, they actually were using it for lavish parties and, oh, um, <laughs> you know, for their uh, – uh, uh, paying for, you know, fancy offices and stuff like that. So that, um, it actually became a problem, but they, but they really tried to highlight the dividend end of things and the investment side. And, um, you know, it made it more of a positive rather than, I mean, they did, they definitely played into the sentimental literature and, Oh, woe is, woe is me. You know, my, my child is going to grow up in poverty because I didn't get, you know, and they did play up on that side of things, but they also recognized that they needed to play up on the positives as well.
0: Well, this is a, a a big issue in your book, but I'm going to ask you for a quick answer because we are running short on time. Okay. And that is that how did the Civil War, you argued the Civil War sort of transformed uh, life insurance in the United States. How did it do so? Uh,
1: yeah, so that's a, that's a big issue. Um, the, the, the short answer, I don't know if there's a short answer. The short answer is, so um, at this point, the industry had somewhat stagnated by the 1850s. Um, and... Primarily in the North. Um, they do have some policies in the South. Um, mm-hmm. um, and the Civil War breaks out and they have to decide what to do. Um, and for their Southern policyholders, because they didn't have a huge, uh, there were some Southern companies catering to the South, but uh, the, the major part of the industry was in the North. They pretty much cut off their Southern policyholders. And, um, and there, there's uh, huge issues there with how they dealt with those Southern policyholders. But they pretty much said, we're not going to be concerned about you. We're going <laughs> to focus on our Northern policyholders. For the North, the issue was, What do we do about either existing policyholders who go off to war? um, Because war was always banned in the policy unless you had a a special Mm -hmm. rider to to go to war. Um, What do we do about someone who goes to war or someone who wants a policy who is currently in the military? And they're very ingenious in in this. They decide they they had been having... uh, a couple meetings of the industry to to collude on a couple other issues, and they decide you know let 's have a discussion over this and They come to an agreement that um, where they agree no one 's bound by this, but they most of them follow through on this they agree they 're going to charge a very heavy surcharge for going to war, <laughs> but if they 're all charging it, then there's no competition to undercut anyone else, so they 're all charging mm-hmm. this heavy surcharge. Um, for their existing policyholders, um, many of them decide they're not going to take on new policyholders. Some some decide to take on new policyholders going to war um, with this this, uh, you know, expensive surcharge. Um, but then they publicize. Oh, look at us. We are doing our patriotic duty. We're stepping up. We are um, participating <laughs> in this. And um, and they if someone dies, and they pay off a policy. It is plastered everywhere. Um, so it's actually a very small percentage of people who get the benefits of being insured during the war at very few soldiers. Um, but the industry plays it to the max and really makes it um, a huge marketing tool. And so the combination of this, you know, this taking on this patriotic banner and also a, a heightened, I argue a heightened sensitivity to death and death among mm-hmm. the young that occurs during this mm-hmm. period. Um, by the time the the war ends the industry just takes off and scale sales skyrocket and you have um many new companies so so the industry is relatively stagnant for much of the 1850s and then you know in the midst of the war and after the war uh, you have all these new companies you have high sales volume and 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 it creates new problems for the industry when you have this rapid rapid growth but Mm -hmm. um but that's w- where I think the the uh, war comes in, where they they used it for uh, for advertising, they used it to promote patriotism, and uh, and just a sight and sense of mortality. Um, Southerners, it's a completely different story, but <laughs> for, for at least for their <laughs> northern customers, that's how
0: they dealt with it. Right. I want to tell my listeners that you know during this interview, uh, you know we could only touch on um, some of the main topics of this book we you've mentioned the south and i'm glad you did because you know there's a whole chapter on slavery and ensuring slaves and and you know the image of the industry and so forth but uh sharon murphy i want to thank you for joining us today uh this is a fascinating conversation i want to remind our readers that when you listen to this there'll be a little button on the right side with an image of this book that links directly to the amazon page so let's uh Throw Sharon Murphy some royalties. Oh, great. Thank you. uh, Because when you write books in history, you don't really expect royalties. But uh, let's get some. So, Sharon Murphy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. You bet. Uh, This is Dan Kilbry with New Books in American Studies. We've been talking with Sharon Murphy about her book, Investing in Life, Insurance, and Antebellum America. We'll see you next time. Bye bye.